such an absolute blessing for us to be together on this morning. First time we're meeting in the morning here. It's uh, great to be able to say good morning to you and mean it this time. And it is tough to see some that aren't with us today. Certainly our hearts are with the Lauer family as they're mourning the loss of Sister Norma and mourning with hope, uh, not grieving as others do and sorrowing as others, but mourning with hope that she was a servant of God. And so we'll be keeping them in our hearts. Art and Shirley, we miss seeing them here. We know that uh, Shirley's having a hard time finding an appointment to get the biopsy done, so we'll keep them in our prayers as well. And others like Miss Patty, who's out with COVID, and others who are traveling are not with us today. But it is great to see so many of us out, and what a blessing that we can be together to do what God has designed for us to do, to stir one another up to love and good works, to worship Him, and to learn from Him about how we ought to be serving and how we ought to be living. And this lesson today is going to take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, as we just read for us. I don't intend to step on Brother Jerome's lesson with the, with the young people. But there's an interesting connection between men and women that Paul makes as he talks about our service. And an interesting contrast even here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, as he speaks of serving God with holy hands and with modest apparel. And I'd like for us to consider some things that are said here. But first, we sort of need to get the background of what's going on here in chapters 1 and 2 in 1 Timothy. He's talking to Timothy. He sent him here to uh, Ephesus to help this church. And he's telling him about some that are teaching doctrinal error. In the first few verses, he says he sent Timothy to sort of correct these ones who are being inconsistent in the doctrine that's been handed down to them. And so he sends this young man armed with the truth of God. That's what's needed to correct. And so he sends Timothy to do that. And he points out in, in chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. It is the power of the word, the power of the gospel, that will correct those who are in error. That's what God's law is meant to do. Those of us who are growing in, his, in the understanding of his law, the law is not really for us in that sense. Law is meant to correct and to point to what is correct. And so that's why Timothy was sent to these people. Paul talks about how that came about in his own life. He needed the correction of the law. He was a man who thought he was following God's law as a Pharisee, and yet he was rejecting the Christ and even putting to death those who were claiming to follow him. He had a horrible past, but through God's law and the correction that came, he was able to obtain mercy as he accepted the gospel's correction. And so Paul had then been entrusted with the gospels. He points out in chapter 1 and verse 12 that God counted him faithful and put him into the ministry and he then passed this gospel on to the hands of Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, he talks about even him committing that to other men who would be faithful and would carry on and would wage the good warfare that the gospel calls us to wage. And so he's talking about all of this as he gets into this chapter 2 that our brother just read for us a moment ago. And the point of all this is that this message that's being sent out through the gospel will hinge upon the will of God. And the will of God is that all men should be saved. Now, we know all won't be saved, but it is the will of God. It's His desire. And so this gospel message comes to reveal the truth so that people can come to the knowledge of the truth that will bring them to salvation if they'll obey it. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'd like to look there quickly. Uh, Paul has got a treatise about why some will and some won't be saved in that text as he's speaking about how the world responds to this gospel message. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. That's what we have in the gospel. What a blessing to be able to share in that and to take part in that. And then as Paul gets into chapter 2, we're going to see how this service plays out. And it's interesting that Paul, in talking about this, will analyze the roles of both men and women in this sort of generic service of serving in the gospel. He'll talk about the men's speech in the first eight verses of chapter 2 and contrast that sort of, or compare that, if you will, with women's conduct. And he's not not talking about men's conduct. That'll also be implied. He will talk in chapter 3 about men as elders or deacons, and we'll talk about their wives and the, uh, the things that are needed for their wives as well. And then he'll speak in chapter 4 and chapter 5 in this contrast of men versus women where you have men as servant preachers and then you have women as these servant widows. And so there's all through this text in 1 Timothy, you have these contrasts. Now, I think it's interesting to consider where Timothy is when he receives this letter. He's in Ephesus. This is part of the Roman world where you have these liberated women, if you will, where the Roman world has set up women in positions of authority. If you go through the book of Acts, you'll begin to see from about chapter 17 forward that these leading women of the Gentile world are starting to come in. And so there's a need to sort of display for these Gentile women what God has always talked about in this distinction of roles between men and women and where he has allowed and where he has not allowed authority to be brought in. And so we'll sort of look at that as we go through these gender distinctions. And it, perhaps it's so fitting for our own time where there's a confusion about even how many genders there are, and certainly there's confusion about are there distinct roles among the two that are mainly recognized. And so God has certainly made gender-based distinctions, the only two genders that he has established. I desire that the men, he says in verse 8, pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And then he says in verse 9, in like manner also the women. So he will talk about distinctions of roles as we proceed with this propagation of the gospel. As we take the gospel into the world, there's a distinction of our roles. And perhaps uh, this will be clarified for us as we go through here. So verse 8, I desire that the men pray everywhere. He's talking about either a public setting or a private setting. There's no limit to where men ought to be praying and leading these prayers. And he's already talked in the first seven verses, which our brother read just a moment ago, the types of prayers and their focus. He talked about prayers, supplications, intercessions, giving of thanks for all men. 
that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life as we pray for kings and those in authority, and then the God's desire that all should come to the knowledge of truth and salvation. All of that's in this context of these men leading these sort of public prayers, or even in a private setting, men leading these prayers. And they're to do that lifting up holy hands. Holy hands would represent proper action, good works. They're holy in the sense that they are without wrath. <laughs> James chapter 1 and verse 20. This is perhaps a fitting uh, injunction for men. It's so uh, uh, easy sometimes for men to allow testosterone to take over and we just want to take care of things in a, in a, in a quick way and sort of a brutal way. But the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, says James, and we understand that to be true. It's not because we overpower the enemy that we're going to win in a spiritual battle. It's because the truth will win. And so we've got to learn to work with holy hands in the sense of not acting out of anger and wrath, but acting out of a desire to save the person who is opposing us and opposing the Lord that we are serving. And they're also holy uh, because they are without doubting or without uh, disputing, perhaps, is another way to say that. And so this idea of, of these doubtful arguments that would come up. Again, James in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, uh, speaking of asking for wisdom from the Lord, says, Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Part of that concept of doubting is this person who sort of plays both sides. <laughs> and that's not the case of someone who's holy. Holy is set apart. Holy is dedicated to the truth. And so as men, as we're lifting up our holy hands in prayer, we are acting without wrath and we're acting in a way that shows that we are consistent with the truth that needs to be taught. But going back to 1 Timothy 2, now in verse 9, uh, in like manner that the women adorn themselves. It's an interesting word that's used here. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 10, he uses that, that word similarly. Um, he says, says in verse 9, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their masters, well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. There's something about making things look presentable, making things look agreeable, and women are to adorn themselves. And we'll talk about this, just like the men were in every place doing this, the women in every place are to adorn themselves, but how? Whether public or private setting, there is this contrast here with teaching. We look at these two verses as parallels. You see these has the men teaching and praying publicly, and the women who have no public permission to teach, are adorning the gospel and adorning themselves in a way that's consistent with the gospel. 1 Corinthians 14, 34, he also says that a woman has no uh, authority for teaching. But I want you to notice 1 Peter chapter 3, because the same concept of the adorning comes up. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Without a word, 
women speak volumes by their conduct, and so do men. I want you to notice we're, we're talking about this distinction in gender roles, but in the end we're going to see that the application of these principles of modesty will apply both to men and women, but the realm is a little bit different based on the role. And so, um, whether public or private setting, the men are lifting up holy hands, the women are lifting up holy adornment, if you will. They're in modest apparel, parallel to the men with these holy hands without wrath and without doubting, the modest apparel, verse 9, for the women. The idea is propriety and moderation. In context, it speaks of over-adorning. <laughs> Typically, we want to focus on under-adorning, <laughs> on using too little, and I think that's appropriate, but that's not what this is talking about here. But the point of all this is where is her focus? <laughs> and that was also the point in 1 Peter chapter 3. Is she drawing attention to herself? Well, I want you to notice as you look at the parallel to the man, why is he lifting up his hands? <laughs> They're holy hands. He should be drawing attention to the Lord and not to himself. This cult of personality that we engender in this country so well, where we follow people who are dynamic, who, who call attention to themselves, and yet we call that serving the Lord or following the Lord. We've got to get over that. <laughs> and so as men are called to lift up holy hands, women are also called to lift up holy conduct and this, uh, this adornment, this propriety and moderation ought to rule the day. And the question again is where is the focus on this? I want you to notice that the focus was given for the men on where their prayers ought to be focused. And the idea here is where are the women focused? Are they focused on presenting a godly uh, and, uh, and good lifestyle? Are they professing godliness with the adornment? Are they Living with good works, again, this is a contrast and a, and a complement to what was asked of the men. What is the message that's being sent by the women? What is the message being sent by the men as they lift up their holy hands? What is proper? What is good for those who profess godliness? And so we have this parallel. As the men are lifting up their holy hands in prayer, women are lifting up themselves in a, in a proper manner uh, as they adorn themselves. Now, it's easy to think of this as only clothing, but I want you to think about what Paul's doing in this context as he finishes out this particular stretch uh, from verses 12 and following. He calls us back to Eden. He begins to talk about Adam and Eve. Out of nowhere in this context, he brings up Adam and Eve. Just as he's mentioned that the woman should learn in silence with all submission, I do not permit a woman to teach or to, to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And then he says, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. This is a direct link to the account we have in the garden. These things were mentioned in the garden. And then this childbearing was mentioned in the garden. And this bringing about of the Savior through this was mentioned in the garden. This is not saying that women who are barren or have no children cannot take a part in salvation's uh, role. That's not the point at all of this. This is tying back into Adam and Eve. God, and through Paul, has called us back to Eden. But I want you to notice some things that were true in Eden that we're undoing with the gospel message. In Eden, sin came into the paradise of the fellowship between man and woman and between man, woman, and God. And so the gospel is needed to bring that fellowship, to restore that fellowship back to its rightful place. It was in Eden that the roles were handed down in Genesis chapter 2 as we learn about the woman being made as the helper for the man. She was made specifically for what his needs were. 
and they were brought together to serve together, to serve the Lord together. And yet they ended up not serving each other or the Lord and, and separating because of that. This happened in Eden. It was in Eden then, as they were being cast out after their sin, that clothing was first given. And we see this mention of clothing and adornment, this external adornment. We'll talk about that in just a moment. This concept of covering is what was given because of sin. And it's truly in Eden where the gospel began. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, when God says that through this painful process of childbearing, He will bring about a seed that will stomp out the head of the serpent. All of this is very directly tied to the fall which happened in Eden as they were then kicked out from there. So I want us to have that concept in our head because that's where Paul took us at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Chapter two. As we begin to look at these sort of role distinctions and gender distinctions that are made here, as we think of this concept of adornment and propriety, these men are adorning themselves with holy hands and, and without wrath and doubting and with good works, as women are also adorning themselves in the gospel with propriety and the manner in which they respond. So both men and women, because they were both responsible in essence for the fall, have a role to fulfill in undoing sin. So Genesis 3 and 1 Timothy 2 have a tie-in together as we look at these uh, distinct roles of men and women. But why mention clothing? <laughs> so here comes the modesty lesson. Why mention clothing in relation to modesty? Well, covering sin is the theme of the gospel. <laughs> Literally, the word atoned means covered. <laughs> and that is a concept that's played over and over here. Adam and Eve, when they were innocent, that was described in Genesis 2, verse 25, by their lack of clothing. The man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. They were in complete innocence. That changes in a few quick verses. As soon as their eyes are opened, seven verses later in Genesis 3, they knew they were naked, they were ashamed, and they hid themselves. They tried to cover their nakedness, first by using some leaves, then by using the entire tree, and that still wasn't enough. So they thought of clothing when they recognized their exposure. As soon as they sinned, they tried to cover themselves by making makeshift garments. That failed. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 10, when God calls to Adam, even though he's clothed himself, I think this is very telling what, what Adam says. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam had clothed himself already. Well, so he thought. But he recognized in the sight of God that he was still exposed, that he was still underclothed. So God himself made tunics of skins for them and clothed them in Genesis 3.21. And this word tunics comes from a word meaning cover. It literally means to hang from the shoulders down, but it's a word that covers them. So I think there is a direct link between the modesty in apparel and this concept of covering that comes from the need for covering our sin. Being uncovered before others ought to bring a context of sin and shame. Biblically, it does. Unfortunately, in our society and most of the societies now, the, the new world culture doesn't see things this way. But being uncovered before others ought to bring a context of sin and shame. Back in Genesis 9, look at that text there. As Noah and his sons come off the ark and he begins to work in his vineyard and becomes drunk. Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 through 25. Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard. 
He drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. Sometimes we have a difficult time with this text, perhaps. It's interesting that this text involves immodesty, if you will, with a man. Typically, we, we only preach this in one direction. That's not the idea here. Modesty is a human issue. It's not a male or a female issue. And so Noah was uncovered. <laughs> but we may have a hard time understanding what happened here. It is in his tent. <laughs> After all, it's just him and his family. So he's become drunk. We know that's wrong. And he's become uncovered. And so one of his brothers goes in and perhaps makes fun of One of his sons goes in and perhaps makes fun of him or reports it in some way sort of lasciviously toward the other two brothers, and they do the right thing and go in and cover their father. Even though it's his fault that he's uncovered, they take care of it. But it's so normal in our society for people to be uncovered in public. Literally, you go out in public, people are just uncovered. Or even worse, they're publishing themselves uncovered. More and more of that is going on, sometimes even among our brethren. So it becomes sort of natural. Culturally, we begin to accept something that ought to bring a context of sin and shame. In Leviticus chapter 18, over and over, the expression is used, you shall not come near to someone who is close to kin and uncover his nakedness. <laughs> over and over, that phrase is used. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife or your father's sister. That is his nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter or your daughter's daughter. It is abomination. Over and over, that's used, and it's a euphemism for the sexual relationship. Lest there be any doubt about that, when we get to Leviticus 18, verses 20 through 23, it's no longer just called uncovering the nakedness. It's then spelled out what's being talked about. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. This language ought to be repugnant. It was meant to be repugnant. And the language before that, uncovering the nakedness, is only a gentler form of the same repugnant attitude. So how can uncovering the nakedness of someone have been repugnant here? Abomination to the Lord and yet acceptable today. It ought not to be. The truth is, Hebrews 4.13 says we're open and exposed before the one to whom we have to give account. Sin leaves everyone uncovered. Now that ties us back into the gospel, doesn't it? Can you see why Paul went there in this particular teaching? Because it's the, it's the gospel that brings us help with covering what needs to be covered. And so the point of this is that modesty in this whole chapter Modesty ought to be the order of the day with those whose sins have been covered. Because modesty decries a sense of shame at sin. And modesty is not only something that is manifest in clothing, in apparel. With men, it's typically more in their attitudes and their actions that it's manifest if they're modest or immodest. Often with women, it's in clothing, but often that's just a display of their attitude. 
The point is, as we look at this issue, even in this context in 1 Timothy 2, we always seem to think that the modesty lesson is for someone else. <laughs> the truth is, it's for you. The truth is, it's for me. <laughs> I need this lesson. I need to consider, am I a modest person in the sense that it's being handed down for both men and women? <laughs> There's a parallel that Paul is pointing out here as he looks at these gender distinctions. There's a parallel and the tie-in is modesty. And how will we handle ourselves before those who are uncovered? So for the men in this context in 1 Timothy 2, modesty is manifest in their speech, in their public and their private prayers, but also in men's attitudes and in their character. They need to have holy hands that decry a sense of shame at sin, not that want to show themselves. That's not what men ought to be about. For women in this context... Modesty is manifest in clothing because specifically in this context, she has no permission to speak in public, so she says a lot by the way she's dressed. I had a good friend when I was in high school, and his dad would always look at whatever t-shirt I happened to be wearing, and he would say, what are you advertising today? And I would wear t-shirts that had something written on them, and most of the time, got them at a Goodwill or something, didn't even think about what was on them. And he would read it and say, oh, so you think we should buy furniture at this store today? <laughs> I guess so. But he was making a point that the way we dress advertises something. It says something about us and about what we think is important. It's true. And so he would always comment on that. We say a lot by the way we dress. And for the woman who is not going to be addressing publicly with her words, that may be the message that's seen, the only one. For the man also, if he doesn't get a chance to speak... The way he dresses is going to manifest something about him and what he believes and what, he, what his character is. What I'm saying is, as we look at this modesty issue, it's not just about clothing. This thing doesn't mean that a man's clothing shouldn't be modest. That's not the, the issue that's being talked about here. It's not saying that a woman's speech shouldn't be modest. Again, that's not the focus here. But I want you to notice the words that Paul uses that are the focus here. I want you to think about the way he describes modest living all through this chapter. Notice these words, and I want you to just consider with yourself, do these words describe me? <laughs> and I'm asking right here. There's a lot of these words that, boy, I need some work on. But I want to read these words out loud. I want you to think about what they have to do with a modest lifestyle. Quiet. Okay, a lot of women got that down, but some don't. <laughs> Men? Are we quiet in our lives? Or are we saying, look at me? Because <laughs> that's what we want to do so many times. What we need to be saying is, look at him. And if we're yelling louder than Christ is being seen through us, people aren't going to see Christ. They're going to see us. Are we peaceable? <laughs> Lift up holy hands without wrath. Or are we saying, you better believe this. It's the truth. <laughs> yeah, we should speak the truth in love, Paul says. But we can grind the truth into people's heads, make them not want it. <laughs> are we guilty of that sometimes? Are we godly? Is that what our neighbors would say about us as they look at us? Do they see this sort of modest godliness or are they seeing the ungodly things that we do while we claim to be Christians? Well, they'll call you out on that right away. They'll call you a hypocrite. And they won't want anything to do with the gospel you say that you're living. Do we live lives of reverence? That would be a modest way to live, thinking of God first, putting Him first. Are we good, acceptable? holy. Do you think about the adorning of the gospel that your life is 
or isn't? Do you live with propriety? Moderation is the word, it's the theme of modesty. But do we live with moderation? Or is the excess what our neighbors and our friends and our family are seeing? Do we live in a way that's proper? Are we willing to be in submission? Modest people are in submission to the Lord first and then to the needs of other people. <laughs> Silence and self-control govern the one who is being modest. Usually it's, it's that saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. We want to be the one squeaking. We want to get greased. <laughs> but for the Lord, it's the one who lives with propriety that receives the blessing. <laughs> Our society's got it backwards. It's not because we call attention to ourselves by yelling that we're going to get the response the Lord wants. I'm not saying there's not a time for indignation, righteous indignation, but we ought to be very careful about that because we're so good at convincing ourselves this is something that I need to be righteously indignant about when it's a traffic jam. <laughs> we got to be careful about how we handle this modesty. So I hope you're seeing that this is not a modesty lesson about clothing, even though that's part of it. <laughs> That's a small part of it. That's a manifestation of where the rest of this is in our lives. But these character issues ought to describe us. Do, do these words describe you? Do they describe your character? Do they describe your dress as sort of an outward manifestation of all of this? And if they don't, there's a great list to work from. It's not a question after all of determining sort of the right rules for a dress code at church. In fact, though there's some debate about this, I'm not convinced Paul's talking about church in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He will start talking about the eldership in chapter 3, and there will be some things that tie into a church setting later. But he's mentioned all men everywhere, <laughs> women in every place professing godliness. I believe he's talking about the world. In fact, his example is from the garden before there ever was a church, <laughs> like the first people that ever lived, and then when they left the garden. And so this is not just about trying to establish some rules for church. It's much more about determining this code of shame or shamefacedness, perhaps, as the old King James would have it, that'll govern a repentant heart. Colossians 2 gets to the meat of this, where Paul, as a Pharisee, is talking about the uselessness of just creating a bunch of rules. And sometimes that's where we get, start talking about clothing, want to talk about hem links and things like that. And you know, there is some value, but it's useless in the end if you haven't changed the heart. Colossians 2 verse 20. If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. What is he saying there? <laughs> the heart has to be trained. God's instructions are meant to train and transform the heart so that these externals will take care of themselves. The law is given to govern externals for people whose heart hasn't been changed. <laughs> God's instruction will change us. Uh, so we need to be in tune with that. 1 Peter 4, 8. Uh, I just love this, and it, it's taken from that Proverb 10, 12. This is something to be considering when we're thinking about this question of covering, literally. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. That's what the gospel is for. That's the need we have because we're exposed in our sin and we're naked and laid bare in our sin. We need to be covered. And if we love each other, we'll be covering each other with the truth of the gospel. 
I want to think about two extremes here as we sort of analyze this and, and as we're closing out our thinking on this. But two extremes to consider as a covered person, covered by the gospel, covered by the blood of Christ, as we're teaching others about their need to become covered. Now, I know there's a lot going on with that. It's a loaded word, and I did that intentionally. But I want us to think about this. And I want us to think about this in the context of 1 Timothy 2. Would your conduct, modest conduct, and the clothing then that manifests that in a certain sense, would your conduct have brought Jesus to stumble as a young man? When you think about that, women and men both, Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Mark 8.33, Peter tempted him. He said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> when Peter tempted him not to go to the cross, that'll never happen to you, Lord. <laughs> Jesus was tempted. Do you think the kind of conduct <laughs> or the kind of clothing that we apparel ourselves with would have been a temptation to him? Young men hanging out with Jesus. Hey, come on, let's... Let's go over here and do this. Or young women around Jesus, dressed in such a way that would have been a temptation to him. Would your conduct, what you usually do, and what you usually dress like, what you usually act like, would that have been a temptation to him as a young man? How would you dress? Think about this. How would you apparel yourself physically and conduct-wise if you were invited to meet and serve Jesus personally? You know what? You are. That's what we're doing here. But think about in person, you're before the Lord. It's interesting. I've gone to Bible studies before where the person is half naked, men and women both, and I knock on the door and they, they run and put some clothes on. Oh, we didn't know you were coming so soon. You don't want to study the Bible with you know, a tank top on. <laughs> okay. One time someone said, oh, let me put my beer away. I don't want to study the Bible with this beer out. <laughs> okay, well, you know, the Lord didn't see that beer before. or didn't see you running around in a tank top or whatever. I understand. I appreciate the propriety. When I showed up, but if you're before the Lord, how would you behave? How would you dress? Think about that for a moment. What about, let's go to the other extreme now. How would your conduct and your clothing be if you're before a repentant sex offender, a brother who is on the sex register, but has repented and has come to Christ and is struggling daily with this difficulty, how would your conduct be around him? Would you bring him to stumble by the things you do and talk about, the things you wear? How would you dress? How would you act? How would you dress your children if you were invited to go to his home to study the Bible with him or to have fellowship with him? He's a brother in Christ. He's got a real struggle going on. And you see, those are two extremes. But we're somewhere in the middle of that in the way we're living and the people we're trying to reach out to. And so I think it's a good question to ask. Why risk leading a brother who is weaker than Jesus? When I use that word brother, not just as a man, man or woman, a brother in Christ, a part of our Christian family, why risk leading someone who is weaker than Jesus to stumble? <laughs> because of the way we, we carry ourselves, the way we dress, the way we apparel our conduct that could be a temptation for somebody else. Why risk that for someone who's weaker than Jesus? You know who's weaker than Jesus? Every one of us. Why would we risk that? Why would we risk making someone who's stronger than a sex offender come to a stumbling because of the way we dress or the way we act around them? <laughs> Amos chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Uh, I just love the, the simplicity. If I can find this verse. Um, well, I knew I was going to do that. I forgot to mark Amos in here. There he is. <laughs> 
Um, I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, you children of Israel, says the Lord? So God wanted there to be good examples among the people. Nazarites, he raised up. Men who have, who have abstained from, uh, from several things that they weren't allowed to have. They were, they were living their life in such a way to, to sort of set them apart as holy. God raised up prophets to bring them the law. But what did they do? They gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets saying, do not prophesy. So the Lord wanted them to have good examples, and they said, we don't want the good examples. They make us look bad. And so sometimes we sort of like the bad examples. But why risk leading someone like that to stumble? The truth is, why risk losing the opportunity to help those who are the most uncovered as we're out in the world? And they're watching how we live. In Romans chapter 2, verse 24, he says, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of the Jews. <laughs> they weren't, as they preached, they weren't listening to what they were preaching. <laughs> they would say one thing and their lives would show that they didn't really believe that. that they were living in a different way. That's the doubting side. <laughs> People are going to look at you and say, do you doubt the faith you're preaching? Because you don't look like you're living it. As we look at all of this, I love 1 Timothy 2. I just love that contrast there. So often what's focused on is the women's clothing, but that's not really the focus. It's a comparison of modest lifestyles with the men who have been given very public roles, as Timothy was here as he went into Ephesus, and the way they must deal with that. But the women who are also going to be in the public eye and how they must deal with that. The truth is God desires the blessing of holy hands for all of us. And he desires the blessing of modest apparel for all of us. And he's made it possible through the Lord. <laughs> he can make us holy through the Lord and his sacrifice and absolutely can clothe us with righteousness. That's what we need because of the covering work of his son Jesus who spilled his blood to atone for our sins. I hope a look at a passage like this will help you to consider the way you live, the way you think about the way you live, and the way that you present yourself. Not just in your clothing. That's just an outward manifestation of what's really going on in your heart. It ought to be appropriate. <laughs> but really work on the heart that's behind the clothing. And the heart that's behind the not quiet and not peaceable and not reverential lifestyle that sometimes we end up letting manifest itself as well. That's just as visible as our clothing to those who are watching from outside. We want to help those who aren't covered by the blood of Christ to desire to be covered by it as they see what our life looks like in modesty covered by the Lord. I don't know your situation, you who are listening to this lesson perhaps online, those who are with us today. If you understand that your sins have not been covered by the blood of Christ, we want to help you take care of that today. If you're willing to come forward confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to be repentant of your sins and have them washed away in baptism, we can help you this very day to start a modest life in His presence. If as a Christian you haven't been living in a covered way, you've been exposed by your own sin or you've been willingly uh, walking into exposure, we'd love to help you to cover yourself, to get back that propriety and modesty that the Lord would have us have. Would you have holy hands? Would you be clothed in, the, in Jesus' righteousness? If you would, come forward if we can help you with that today.